Good evening, my name is Josh Barry, one of the Barrys. <laughs> it's good to see some new faces around. Welcome. It's good, to, good that you guys have come. Tonight's Bible reading, I believe, comes from Matthew 12, verse 22 to 32. Yep. Then they brought him a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute, and Jesus healed him so that he could both talk and see. All the people were astonished and said, Could this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and every city or household divided against itself will not stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he is only divided against himself. How then can this kingdom stand? And if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your people drive them out? So then they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. And so I tell you, every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven, but blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit, will not be forgiven either in this age or in the age to come. Thanks, Josh. Evening, everyone. Before I start tonight, just to inform you of a couple of things. Pastor Charlie is on holidays. His sister, Winnie, if you are not aware, not his sister, Elena's sister, Winnie, has been placed into a care facility uh, this week, which is good uh, for them. The whole family, they're flying across next Saturday and the whole family will be gathering together and pray that they have, uh, I guess, a good, enjoyable time with winning, um, that it's not too traumatic, particularly for the two girls. This is their favourite auntie. Um, and just for them to have wisdom on what's the way forward, looking after mum going forward and so on. Second thing to inform you of... Um, is uh, we spoke last week about Jay Roan, a young indigenous boy who at the age of 15 has passed away a couple of weeks ago now. And his body would have been moved up to Doomagee and the family have gone and we're asking the church if you are able to, to contribute perhaps some sort of financial assistance to them. Uh, we opened that up last Sunday and so we're doing it again today just for a few days and then that middle week we'll close that and whatever funds have come in, uh, then we'll forward that forward to them so that um, they're cared for. Uh, the money will actually go to the church, another church, which is actually paid for the whole lot to go, but we're supporting them. Um, yeah, Jason and Leona had contacted us and said, could we do something as a church? And I said, of course. So we've raised, I think, something uh, about $1,200, something like that. So thank you for those of you who have contributed to that um, and been very generous. Um, and we'll see what comes in over the next couple of days and so on. This week, also, I have three funerals. 
tomorrow I have a funeral for um, Betty and Kevin uh, used to attend our craft on Thursday. Betty had been coming to the craft for a long, long time, um, more than 20 years, um, uh, when Heather Robinson, in fact, was in charge of our craft ministry on a, during the week. So it's going back quite a few decades. And Kevin, her husband, would come with her and he would sit and read the paper and we would chat and so on. They, had a, they have had well, have a simple faith, a belief in the Lord, and that's where we believe he has gone to be with his Lord. His funeral is tomorrow morning um, at 11 o'clock. On Friday at 2 o'clock in the afternoon, again here in the auditorium, we are celebrating the life of Cole Hood. Um, Pete and Jude, Jude's dad, but Pete's father-in-law, and, uh, and the other rest of the family members are, are travelling across. and That should be uh, a real celebration of a very godly man's life and existence. And we'll hear stories about Cole and... I've known him, obviously, for 20 years, and uh, we got on really well. He was very supportive, and um, so I'm glad that he's gone to be home with the Lord. Every year, he was about six months older than my dad, so he was always tracking with me, you know, how's your dad, and so on. And then, of course, the third funeral I'll have this week is on Wednesday night. <laughs> when New South Wales will probably pass away. Well, I'm just, you know, relying on the statistics. What is it, Josh, in 43 years? How many games have we been able to resurrect after being beaten in the first? Sorry, at Suncorp. Hmm. Which means it's due for change. <laughs> I'm not hopeful. Um, after the members meeting this morning, you wouldn't be aware of this. In fact, most people would not be aware of it. Uh, we had a great members meeting, went for 20 minutes and we approved the new budget and then after it, a lady put up a hand and said to the chair, could I just speak to the members? And the chair looked at me and I went, no, you know, we're not doing that as part of the members meeting, that's all pre-arranged and so that everybody is informed of what's going on and, and so on. And then I got up and walked across to hear the lady say to the chair, all I wanted to do was to get the members to move to make Daryl an honorary Queenslander. Anybody want to speak against the motion? <laughs> Correct. State of origin. I don't have a choice. It's preordained. God's will for me to be supporting New South Wales. Um, <clears throat> now I've forgotten what I was going to say. That's what happens when you get to my age. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that we can be together that we can enjoy each other's company and your presence, and that we can learn together. Lord, help us by your Holy Spirit to do that tonight, to listen, to learn, to discuss, to discern your truth, that we might follow you obediently and closely. We ask and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We are talking, of course, tonight, the ongoing series that we're doing on the Holy Spirit, which tonight will be the last one we'll do for a couple of weeks. During the school holidays, we're going to take a break. Uh, next week, Pastor Tracy will talk about Mark chapter 2, the guy got let down through the roof, and then we'll follow that up with maybe Luke 5 and John 21, some other gospel stories. And then um, the kids will be back at school, and so then we'll resume the series a couple of weeks at least on the Holy Spirit. We'll talk about the fruit of the Holy Spirit. And we'll talk about the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Um, 
it's a huge topic, um, and we'll see how we go from there. Tonight we come to consider this whole issue, that the Holy Spirit, who is a divine person who helps us, uh, is a person whom we can hurt, offend, blaspheme, quench, rebel against, insult, um, and so we're going to look at some of those issues tonight. Um, and just, many, some of you have heard this this morning, um, and so I'd, I'd like to change it up maybe just a little bit. It won't be dramatically different, but we'll wait. So if you get a question that we're travelling through, just shoot your hand up. Uh, Warren can answer it for us. Here we go. An outline. Uh, there are six, uh, I didn't put it up there, it's on the end. There are six sins in the New Testament. There's one in the Old Testament. There are six sins in the New Testament we can commit against the Holy Spirit. Of those six sins, three are what a non-Christian, an unbeliever would commit. And the next three are what believers would commit. And the three sins that an unbeliever would commit is the one in this passage called blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And then there is um, resisting the Holy Spirit. I'll show you the verses for this as we fly through tonight. And then insult the Holy Spirit. Thanks, Jeff. I'm not going to talk too much about the one in Acts 5, which is where Ananias and Sapphira lie to the Holy Spirit. But that one's basically dealing with where we pretend before others to be more godly than what we really are. And that is a lie. He takes, the Holy Spirit takes that as an untruth because he's the spirit of truth. He expects us to speak the truth. And of course then, and we'll talk about this more, is you can grieve the Holy Spirit and you can quench the Holy Spirit. That's out of the New Testament. In the Old Testament, both in the Psalms and in Isaiah, it talks about how you can rebel against the Holy Spirit. And the, and the prophet and the psalmist is talking about how the children of Israel had always or often rebelled against the Holy Spirit and grieved him by their always going aside into idolatry and anything else. <clears throat> Probably the most controversial of all of these is the first one, to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. And there are different views and different interpretations. I once used to think that we couldn't commit this sin. Um, I'd qualify that now. I used to say uh, we can't commit this sin because Jesus is not here in the flesh. That Jesus would need to be here in the flesh and that people would have to attribute what he is doing to the devil and uh, not to the spirit of God. That's the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit because he's not here, we can't do that. You know, he's not here physically, we can't do that, so therefore don't worry about it. I'd modify that. I don't think that I would hold that view now. But I don't think Christians can commit this sin. I don't think we as believers can blaspheme the Holy Spirit. Um, but of course, I guess there is always exceptions. Blaspheming the Holy Spirit, like any form of blaspheming, is usually something verbal that happens. It's a word which is slanderous or derogatory, offensive, and particularly in English, blasphemy is against the divine. So it's where we speak inappropriately about the divine. We see that as blasphemy. The original language, both Greek and Hebrew, was of course a little bit more generic. It's simply a word that would be, we could blaspheme one another. We could offend and hurt one another. It's the same word in the original language. So let's have a look at this passage, see what we can learn about it and see where we go. Are you going to do that for me? Oh. Um, 
here is a miracle, a pretty dramatic miracle that the Holy Spirit sets up in the person of Jesus. Push the pause button. Before I go any further, you need to understand that consistently through the Gospels, the Lord Jesus, though he is God, came into our world, born as a little baby, and grew up as the man, Jesus. So the Son of God becomes the human, Jesus. He is both God and man. As a man, everything he does in the flesh, in this life, he doesn't do it out of his divine nature. The scripture says to us, it's not that he laid that aside, but it's rather he didn't tap into it. He wasn't relying on his own divinity. He was relying on the spirit of God within him which helps us understand why didn't Jesus perform any miracles before the wedding in Cana? He's 30 years of age and he's done no miracles. Why? Because it's after his baptism. It's after the Holy Spirit says, now is the time for you to be, demonstrate publicly who you are, the Messiah, the promised one, come in the flesh. And Jesus says on numerous occasions, everything I do, I do by the Spirit of God. He even says it in this passage. He doesn't say that he does it himself, out of his deity, the spirit of God in him does it. Which of course then means if the spirit of God in Jesus could do those miracles and the spirit of God in us can do those miracles, we can't, he can. Which is why we can sometimes lay hands on somebody and pray for healing and they get healed. We didn't do it, he did it. He is the healer and so on. So they brought to him, back to the, unpush the pause button, push play. Then they brought him a demon-possessed man who was both blind and mute. So this is a very needy individual. Couldn't see, couldn't speak. It was pretty obvious to everybody. And on top of that, he's demon-possessed. Perhaps even the cause of his blindness and muteness is his possession. Sometimes demon's possession has a benefit, has a an impact on us in terms of illness. There was a lady in Luke 16, I think it is, somewhere, where she was uh, bent over and had been bleeding for many, 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 many years, something like 16 years, something like that. And the doctors couldn't heal her. And when Jesus saw her, she touched the hem of his garment, that's that lady, and power went out from him and she got healed. And Jesus says, who touched me? And you know the story. And then eventually he says, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. When you look at that passage, if I've got it right in my memory, then she actually had a demon that was cast out of her, which was causing the illness. I better check that. I've gotten a couple of stories mixed up together. Anyway, here is this guy. He's blind and mute. And they bring him to Jesus. And it says, and Jesus healed him. Cast the demon out. Then the guy could see for the first time and he could speak for the first time it's an incredible miracle because I have a two and a half year old grandson and they're not well either pray for them he's got foot and mouth what is it called hand foot and mouth virus that's pretty painful and now he's given it to his mother so that's pretty painful for Katie Um, my grandson he's two and a half and he's learning to speak 
And that's what happens for us. We develop, we grow, both physically but also mentally and all other sorts of ways. It's a skill that you acquire. Here is a man who has never spoken in his life. He can suddenly speak. All of that information, those brain channels and things is part of the healing and given to him. And so he could both talk and speak. The people are obviously very astonished at it. They were amazed. This is very impressive. They, in fact, started to draw the conclusion, <clears throat> could this be the Messiah? Could be this one who's been promised? Is this him? And, of course, the Pharisees, they've got a reputation for being opposed to Jesus. And when they hear the people saying these sorts of things, they want to oppose it. So when the Pharisees, they said to them, it's only by Beelzebul, who is the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. Notice how they talk about Jesus? This fellow. They don't have a great deal of respect for him. But the Spirit of God, nonetheless, has arranged these circumstances that here is a very clear public miracle demonstrating something happened through Jesus. Pharisees could have argued that well, there's only two supernatural causes, God and Satan. If they concluded this was God, if this was divine, then they would have had to submit to Jesus. They'd have to bow their knee, they'd have to change their attitude. And they have to start acknowledging that, gee, what he's saying is true, that he is the Messiah. So they don't want to go there. They're fully opposed to Jesus. So they go the other way. Oh, this fellow only performs these sorts of miracles and it's a con trick or something, but he does it by the power of Satan. Stay away from him. Now, it's in that utterance that they are saying to something else that they are committing blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Their attitude towards the Spirit of God in Jesus performing this miracle is completely wrong and they're attributing it not to a divine source but to a demonic source. That's dishonouring, slanderous, offensive to the Spirit of God. And so Jesus responds to this Jesus knew their thoughts. So it wasn't so much he heard what they said, he knew what they were thinking. The spiritual gift, we would call that as a word of wisdom or a word of knowledge, the Spirit of God would have revealed it to him. Jesus knew their thoughts. So blasphemy against the Spirit is not just something you say, it's something that starts in here, in your thinking processes. Every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, obviously. Every city and household divided against its stand will not stand. Of course, if you're fighting internally, you'll destroy your own house or kingdom. If Satan drives out Satan, he's divided against himself. Why would Satan deploy his own forces against his own forces? He's defeating, he's shooting himself in the foot. How can his kingdom... That's what Jesus is saying. Your reasoning is silly. Then he also challenges them. Besides... If you say, I drive out demons by Beelzebub, well, who do your other Pharisees drive demons out by? Because they used to say that they could do that. Matthew chapter 7, remember Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, <clears throat> but only those who have done to my will of my Father who is in heaven. Lord, we cast out demons in your name. We perform miracles in your name. We prophesied in your name. They claim. Depart from me, Jesus says. I don't know you. So Jesus challenges them. Well, you're inconsistent. If you think I'm doing it by Beelzebub, who are they doing it by? You don't say Beelzebub. So it's not true. Um, but then Jesus says, 
But if it is by the Spirit of God, not a satanic source, but a divine source, if I do that by the Spirit of God, then God's kingdom has drawn near. It has come in me as the Messiah. It is present. Um, Jesus then goes on to forgive a very good challenge, which is good for us to be aware of. Jesus says, if you're not with me, what? There are two choices. You're with him or you're against him. Isn't there a third one, though, in the middle? People are with him. People are against him. Can I be here in the middle on the fence? And I haven't made up my mind yet. What does Jesus say? Either you are with me or whether you're on the fence or whether you are opposed to me, you're against me. To not be for him is to be against him as far as Jesus is concerned. It's a very bold, strong statement. And he goes on to say, and so I tell you, underline this in your brain, every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven. Every kind. There is no sin that we can commit that he can't forgive. Except one. Every sin and every slander can be forgiven. But, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be, either in this life, in this age, or in the one to come. Jesus is giving a very serious warning. What is this one sin that cannot be forgiven? I don't think it's just simply saying the Pharisees making a one-off, rash, spontaneous statement. It's not that. It's rather a considered, persistent um, attitude and response of resistance to Jesus. Regardless of the very clear evidence that is presented before them, they say, that's not God. In fact, they attribute it not just to not God, but they say it's demonic, it has an evil source. And it's that statement this refusal to take the evidence clearly and to come to Jesus and to ask him to forgive us, it's that refusal to do that that makes the person unforgiven and unforgivable. Does that make sense? So blasphemy is not just something, it's not something we just say, it's an attitude. And it's similar to the other words the New Testament uses, it's an attitude of resistance it's an attitude of suppressing, of not wanting to respond. Hear this. God is willing and God is able to forgive everybody. There is not a person on the planet that he doesn't want to forgive. He doesn't want anyone to perish. But he has given us free will and so we have to make a choice. And he respects our choice. He responds to it. He tries and he tries and he tries and he tries, but eventually people will get to the point where they'll say, no thanks, I'm really not interested. And God will take them at their word. And he'll hand them over, he'll give them up, he'll leave them alone. As I said this morning, this is my belief, my theology, if you like. <clears throat> and I can't show you a chapter and a verse, but I can show you some sort of passages that would sort of allude to it. So if you want those, you can come and ask later. Imagine uh, there's a path in front of us and that's the path of life that we are on. 
I believe that what God has done for most people, not all, for most people, at the end of the life is the wall, my, where you die, that's the wall. For most people on the path, God draws the line there. Right at the end of their life is the line that once you cross that line, God says, I'm done. I've tried and tried and tried. You've resisted and resisted and resisted. You said, no, no, no. Well, enough is enough. For many people, I know it's at the end of their line because the thief on the cross did it at the end of his life. We've had two people in our church in the last 12 months do it at the end of their life. Husbands of wives who have been resistant all of their married life get cancer, they're dying. On the last weeks, the last days of their life, they accept Jesus to forgive them. The amazing thing is he does. So God is willing and able to forgive. And for many people, the line's down there. I don't know where the lines are, but I think some people's lines are not down there, they're here. And as they approach the line in their life, they're getting close to it. God is working on them, working on them, working on them, convicting them, giving them dreams, circumstances and situations. And they turn a deaf ear. I don't want to hear. I, it's not that I uh, don't believe. It's that I don't want to believe. I don't want you to be Lord of my life. I want to do my own thing. I want to enjoy myself. And if they cross the line, Romans chapter 1, God hands them over. He gives them up. You've made your choice. It's locked in, like Pharaoh in Egypt. His heart is hardened. It's not that God hardened his heart. It's that he hardened his heart and that God then in response to that says, if that's the way you want it, then I'll lock you into it. What do you want to do? Your choice? And I choose to do this. And so God locks him into it for his own purposes. So the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is something you think, it's an attitude, <clears throat> it's a persistent, consistent attitude of resistance to the convicting work of the Holy Spirit, it's not wanting to take the offer of forgiveness that God is offering to you, and the person says, no, I don't want anything to do with it. In fact, I think it's satanic or evil or something else. That's blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. The person, the sin is unforgivable because the person doesn't repent, doesn't take it. Does that make sense? God is willing and wanting to forgive. And he will if you repent. If you don't repent, if you don't turn around, if you don't say sorry to God, don't ask for forgiveness. If you don't do that, then God can't forgive you. And God won't forgive you. So the ball's in our court. And I think that's what Jesus is teaching in this passage. And I think that's what blasphemy against the Holy Spirit alludes to. It's like the next one. This is Stephen. You stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Same thing. Just a different way, a different phrase, different metaphor. You always resist the Holy Spirit. He's reaching out to you and you're saying, no thanks. Next verse. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors didn't persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you've taken and you've betrayed and killed him, murdered him. That shows that consistent attitude of resisting 
That's what this sin is referring to. Or in Hebrews 10.29, again, it's you insult the spirit. But in the context, notice that it says, you, your attitude is you trample underfoot the Son of God, you treat the blood of Jesus like it's a common thing, and you insult the spirit. It's that persistent resistance, defiance, non-acceptance of what God is offering. That's the sin which is unforgivable. Because they don't ask for it. God doesn't withdraw it. They don't claim it. What about Christians? Well, um, very quickly. The Apostle Paul writes to the Ephesian church. And if you read the book of Ephesians, you'll find the Holy Spirit referred to, I think it's twice in in each of the six chapters. And it's a very spirit emphatic book. And the Apostle Paul says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. It means he's got a personality. It means he can be sad. He can be upset. He can grieve. How do we grieve the Holy Spirit? Well, in the context of the passage, it's our attitudes and our actions towards other people. It's the words that we say, the harsh criticisms and so on. That grieves the Holy Spirit. When we are disobedient to his commands, we grieve the Holy Spirit. When we even operate out of our own doubts, that grieves the Holy Spirit. When we don't listen to his promptings, his divine voice saying, suggesting things to us, that can grieve the Holy Spirit as well. What happens when we grieve the Holy Spirit? He doesn't leave us. He's permanently with us. Never will he leave us. But he goes quiet. Just like in a marriage, when I get upset with Rhonda, which hardly ever happens except on days ending in Y. <clears throat> That's not true. I go quiet. If she gets upset with, well, she doesn't get upset with me. I mean, if you're married to me, why would you get upset with me? Is that true, sweetheart? Do you get upset with me? Oh, you do. Uh, we'll talk in the car. <clears throat> you go quiet. And the other person says, what's the matter? And the answer is always, nothing. I know, there's something. That's what the Holy Spirit does. He's a person. He's hurt, he's offended by our choices, our behaviours. He doesn't leave, but he withdraws. And you'll notice a lack of the sense of the presence of God in your life. That's because you've grieved him. How do you fix it? Apologise, confess, say you're sorry, and fix it. Another thing that we can do, both individually and as a church, is that we can quench the Holy Spirit. The word quench is a metaphor for like a fire. You can dampen the fire. You can put it, you quench your thirst by drinking. You can quench a fire by throwing water on it. So we can quench the, the fire of the Spirit within us, if you like. How do we do that? Well, we had a pastor's dinner thing last night at Tracy and Glenn's place and they had a, an open pit fire and we had potatoes and dessert and stuff and sat around the fire and the longer you sit there then the timbers burn down and they go to coals if you don't do anything then it goes down fires need tending they need looking after and you need also to put proper fuel on the fire uh, where it was located there was a large hedge around us and one of the green twigs from this thing fell down and landed on me so I took this green twig this green branchy thing and I threw it on the fire and we were I was amazed because it was pretty hot I expected the thing to go woof it didn't it stayed there this green twig 
is about that long with, you know, branches and leaves coming off it and so on. It must have taken five minutes before that thing caught fire. Why? Oh, it's the wrong fuel. It was green. So it was resistant. So too, if we have the wrong fuel in our life, if we have impurities, that can quench the work of the Spirit in us. So what do we do in order to not quench the Spirit, to fan, to flame the Spirit within us, to be filled with Him? Read the Scriptures, listen to Him, talk to Him in prayer, respond in obedience, keep an open relationship. His desire for you is to connect and fellowship with other believers in church, in connect groups, in ministry groups. And his desire for you is to be missionary-minded, to be reaching out to others, to be concerned for others. That's how we don't quench the Spirit, but rather walk with the Spirit, be filled with the Spirit. So these are the sins that people can commit against the Spirit. The top three, by unbelievers, to blaspheme, to resist, to insult. The bottom three, by believers, to lie to, to grieve, and to quench. There is not a members meeting at 10 a.m. That's happened. If you would like us to pray for you, then you can, uh, by all means, come and do that. You turn to the person beside you and say, would you pray for me? This is what's going on for me this week, or I need prayer for this. Okay? Oh, yep. Uh, People often, I don't know how many times I've been asked this over the years, and I'm sure you have too, and you may have even asked it. Have I committed the sin which is unforgivable? Have I blasphemed the Holy Spirit? And the answer to that is always. <clears throat> if you are worried or fearful that you have committed the unforgivable sin, be at peace, you haven't. How do you know? Because if you've committed the unforgivable sin, you won't be anxious about it, you won't be fearful of it, you won't be worried about it. You'll be, you'll be unaware of it. The Holy Spirit convicts us. If you cross that line, wherever it is, and then the Holy Spirit, you've blasphemed the Spirit at that point, then he withdraws. He no longer works on you. And you're quite happy in your state of indifference to God or perhaps you even think there is no God. So you're not concerned about, have I committed the sin of the Holy Spirit? That's a point of conviction. So if you fear you've done it, you haven't. Make sense? Some people fear that I have committed some really bad sins and God can't forgive me for those. There is not a sin that he can't forgive you for. Not a sin. The only sin that God can't forgive you for is the one where you refuse to repent and to ask for forgiveness. Once you've done that, you are with him. You're either with me or against me. And once you're with him, you're with him forever. That's another whole topic and issue, but we won't go down that rabbit hole. Any other questions? Okay. I think we're done. They give up. What is it saying? What about the person who has been active in the church, said they're a Christian, you know, attend church, serve in the church, walk with Jesus, say they do, but then something happens in their life and they just stop. 
and they walk away and say, I'm not doing this anymore. What about them? Well, God knows all things, we don't. Question, does the person who did that, were they for Jesus? And in their heart, were they really for him sincerely? Because if you're for him, you're with him. Does that make sense? There are people who will say, I'm a Christian, who will turn up to church and I'll pretend and do all of that, but they're not really Christians. They're pretenders. How do you tell the difference? Well, with discernment and with difficulty. Usually by their fruit, you will know them. But gee, there are some pretty good actors out there. Mm. So you can fool us, but you can't fool God. He knows. He knows the heart. And so that's my answer. If a person has professing faith, if, if they were sincere, if it was genuine, we can all get tempted, we can all get tricked and stumbled, we can go astray. But if we are part of him, if we belong to his kingdom, he pursues us and he'll bring us back to himself. You need to read Hebrews 4, 5 and 6. That'll tell you about that. Um, yeah. But for the people who are pretending, who are not sincere in their repentance, belief and acceptance of Jesus, it's just a game. And as they get older and they give it up and they walk away, well, they were never with him. They were never for him. They said they were, but they weren't really. Yeah. That's what I think. Our role is not to be judging. As long as a person is above ground, there is hope. But once you are below ground, once you die, your destiny is set. You set it. You have a choice. You can go upstairs or downstairs. You go air conditioning or smoking. Whichever one you want. Ball's in your coin. When you die, when you get on that plane, your destination is set and it doesn't change course. Bound for glory? Because I accept it and believe in Jesus. Not bound for glory, bound to a place of what the Bible calls hell, of where punishment is, where God says, have it your way. You don't want me in your life? Well, I won't be in your life. And it's horrible. Yeah. I should pray, shouldn't I? Time? Let's pray for New South Wales, eh? <laughs> Don't have enough faith? What? <clears throat> Thanks, Heavenly Father, for tonight. <clears throat> These are big issues and important issues. But the bottom line is, Lord, knowing you, loving you, and walking closely with you. None of us do that perfectly. Forgive us, Lord, for, for our sin, for the times we've hurt and offended you, where we've sinned, where we've been just arrogant and silly. Thank you that you are so loving and patient to us. Cleanse us and then, Lord, please fill us with your spirit. Take control of our lives and help us to walk closely with you in ways that please you, that honour you and that serve you. We ask and pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless everybody.